Genesis 3, 6 through 24. And again, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we do ask that you would open the windows of heaven and that you would pour down a blessing on your people, that you would give us wisdom and understanding. We lack wisdom. And you have promised that you give to those who come to you single-mindedly in faith, believing that you are generous and liberal and that you give wisdom without partiality. And so, our Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would fix our eyes on him. We pray that you would help us to understand more of what he's done for us and more of who we are in him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 6, and the serpent, the evil one, has come, and he has deceived our first parents. He has lured them into sinning against the Creator. And now, Moses writes, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And that is clearly the first gospel promise. The Lord Jesus would have his heel bruised at the cross. The serpent would have his head crushed. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God 
endures forever. Well, when I was a very young boy, I remember there was one story that my mother would read to me that always sort of bothered me, and that was the story of the emperor's new clothes. I didn't understand the point of the emperor's new clothes. And my mom would read this story to me, and she would read many stories to me. And I remember thinking, what an odd story. Here is an emperor who has all power, and he has everything at his disposal, and he is caught up with dressing well and with nice attire. And so two swindlers come into the town, and they convince the king that they can make for him the most magnificent clothing. And everyone is sort of afraid of the king. And so as the king sends his delegation to these two swindlers to, to, to see what kind of garments they can make and see how the process is going, one by one they go and they realize that there's nothing on the loom and that the swindlers are swindlers. But they come back and they tell the king it looks magnificent. And it's going to look magnificent on you. And then the swindlers finally come to the king and the king comes and he's been so deceived that as he looks at the loom and, and they say, here, king, here is the excellent garment that we have made for you. The king looks at it and realizing there's nothing there but himself now being deceived is, is elated and he, and he rejoices that the swindlers have made him this most magnificent garment and he says that they're to put it on him and he is to be paraded out and as he goes out through the city, all the people praise the king and they say, oh king, oh emperor, the garments look so magnificent on you and at the end of the story, one little child in the crowd says, but he hasn't anything on. A child says he hasn't anything on. Now, there are books written trying to explain what Hans Christian Andersen meant when he wrote the story of the emperor's new clothes. But I wonder, and there's no way that we'll know in this life, I wonder if in some way he does not have the account of Genesis 3 etched in the back of his mind because here in paradise, Adam, who is king, and Eve, who is queen, who have everything at their disposal, and God says to them, the whole world is yours. You can eat of every tree. You can explore and develop and cultivate and populate and turn the world into the garden and to take that temple, that garden temple out where God would dwell with man, and they have everything from God. And then a swindler comes in, and he says, but I will make for you the most magnificent clothing. I will make for you something that God would not give you, something that the Creator would not give you. And Adam and Eve, as you know, succumb. And there are these interesting time bombs in Genesis 3 where we're first told that Adam and his wife, after God created them, they were naked and they were unashamed, that there was something beautiful. They were clothed with divine glory. They had the best garments on. The emperor was wearing the best garments. Adam was clothed in divine glory, and Eve was, was uh, invested with divine glory, and they were naked, and they were unashamed, and there was no guilt, and no corruption, and there was no sin in the world. They were everything God wanted them to be, and then they allowed themselves to be deceived, and they allowed themselves to think that there must be something better, and they allowed themselves to think that the voice of the evil one was more important than the voice of the Creator. And then Moses tells us, no sooner did they eat, notice the very first thing, then the eyes of both were open, verse 7, and they knew that they were naked. 
Now, what's interesting, and we'll see this morning, is that the culmination of the account of the fall is that while, yes, curses fall on Adam and Eve, and while, yes, Adam and Eve are expelled and exiled out of Eden, and they become part of the wilderness that they were to turn into the garden, and that while they lost all of the divine blessing, God, in his mercy and redeeming grace, will come, and he will clothe them again. He will clothe them again. And so this morning we want to see what Adam and Eve exchanged as they rebelled against God. There is a great exchange. The, really the story of Genesis 3 is the story of exchange. Adam and Eve are giving up what God had given them. They are exchanging what was already theirs by virtue of creation. They were giving up and exchanging, as Paul will tell us in Romans 1, the glory of God for things made like Creatures, that's our story. That's us, that's our experience. That's your experience. It doesn't matter who you are. We have exchanged the glory of God, Paul says, for things made like man and beast and fallen animal, and we have worshipped and we have served the creature rather than the creator. Now, there's something interesting before we look at three things that they exchange. And that is the Genesis 3 account is so nuanced and it is so carefully written that if we take the time to get in there and we take the time to draw out what's in there, what we'll find is that everything that we need to know about the nature of temptation, the nature of the fall, and the nature of redemption are all built into this one chapter. Every facet, every nuance, Every dimension, it explains why things are in the world the way they are, our relationships. And so we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see that Adam and Eve, and Adam being our representative, so we, in him, exchanged innocence for guilt and shame. And secondly, we're going to see that we exchanged fellowship with God for alienation with him. And finally, we're going to see that we exchanged intimacy with one another for antagonism. We'll notice first that we exchange innocence for guilt and shame. Adam and Eve have given in to the temptation of the evil one. God knows in the day that you eat of it, you're going to be like God. And we talked last week and we said that Adam and Eve did gain something by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They experientially gained the knowledge of good and evil by rejecting the good and choosing the evil. Uh, D.A. Carson gives a magnificently helpful illustration of what it means to have the experiential knowledge of good and evil. He said many years ago his wife had cancer and very severe and very um, uh, rapidly growing cancer and she went to a doctor and the doctor told her all about the kind of cancer she had and the doctor told her what would happen and how it would have to be treated and exactly what it was doing to her. And D.A. Carson said, but my wife knew something that that doctor didn't know. That my wife knew something about the cancer that she had that that doctor treating her did not know. He said, my wife knew what it was to have that cancer in her body. Adam and Eve now know what it is to have evil in their bodies. They know what it is experientially to know evil. It's not a theoretical knowledge of good and evil. It is now an experience that they are evil, we are evil, we are fallen, and, they've, and now the painful reminder of Adam that, that he has rejected the good and he would only know the good 
by way of contrast with what he rejected. And that means because we were created good and to know God who is good and to live quorum day before the face of God, that what Adam and Eve did was they, they brought guilt and shame down into their lives and into their consciences and into their status before God. Everything now for Adam and Eve is guilt and shame. They have exchanged innocence for guilt and shame. They have exchanged innocence for condemnation. Notice that Moses tells us in verse 7, the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, you have to listen carefully. This is what happens. Adam and Eve now have gained the knowledge of good and evil experientially, and that means that they are then to judge the world around them by the knowledge of good and evil. And the first thing that they take note of is themselves. Isn't that fascinating? They've gained the knowledge of good and evil. They are now to judge the world around them by virtue of the knowledge of good and evil. And the first subjects in the dock that Adam and Eve or to examine is themselves. And they immediately know that they are condemned, and they immediately know that they are shamed. You know, the Puritans would talk about conscience as a gnawing worm, a gnawing worm. You're not going to hear this in most churches, but you have a conscience, and you know what the gnawing worm of a conscience is, that it will eat away at somebody. You see people who have done things, criminal acts and wicked acts, and they hide it and they cover. They do exactly like Adam and Eve, and they deteriorate, and they deteriorate, and they deteriorate. Every, every show on television shows you this. You see it in the world around, you live with it. We have consciences, and we have the knowledge of good and evil, and every one of us is fallen in Adam, and we know, and we stand as sort of personal judges, and we take account of what's going on, and there is a shame, and there is a shame that arises from the nakedness. Notice the first thing, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, this is difficult. The more you read on this, the more theologians you read, the more books in church history you read, the more difficult this becomes. What was it about their physical nakedness that, that by way of analogy, showed them the shame of their spiritual nakedness. Because before the fall, there was nothing shameful about their physical nakedness. There was nothing innately shameful about it. Sex between Adam and Eve was good and beautiful and right and intended by God and had his blessing on it. And even after the fall, the writer of Hebrews says, the marriage bed is undefiled. The marriage bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It was not sinful. They were not sinful not to have clothing on, and there are several explanations of what's going on, and, and one of them is that, that they realized the loss of innocence. They realized that in their sexual desires, they had lost the sense of innocence. Um, another explanation is that physical nakedness was a, an analogy of the inner nakedness of their souls because they had been deprived of the divine image. The divine glory had been stripped from Adam and Eve. Remember, we said early in this series that when Moses goes up on the mountain and he's in the presence of God, his face shone that it reflected the glory of God. And some of the old theologians will say that 
that we can't go back and imagine what it would have been like when Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. They would have been clothed with divine glory and they would have emanated the divine glory. That was their clothing. And now it was stripped away. And now there was no way they could have the divine glory because they were now unrighteous. And God could not dwell with unrighteousness. And now they were stripped bare. Another explanation, I think, which is helpful and interesting, and you have to listen very carefully, is that Adam and Eve realized, because they cover those parts of their body used in reproduction, they realized now that their actions would would affect their offspring, that now their offspring would be made in their image, and that the corruption and the guilt and the shame would pass through generation to generation, that they had lost the divine glory for us. They lost the divine glory for us. They knew, they knew that somehow this affected even the reproductive blessing that God had had said, be fruitful and multiply. Now that would be affected. And then finally, and maybe most helpfully, some say that shame is the reflex in the body of the principle of corruption introduced by sin into the soul. Shame would be the instinctive uh, decay of human nature, that, that, that shame, now they lived with shame and they felt stripped. They didn't feel like what they were supposed to be. They realized that they weren't what they were supposed to be when we sin and we think. Now let me drive this home today. Men, would you want your mother's and your wives and your daughters to know what you think uncovered. All of them, all your thoughts. And women, would you want your fathers and your husband and your sons to know all of your thoughts? Stripped bare, laid open. Adam and Eve realized that was the position they were in. They were stripped bare. They were full of shame because they had rejected God. Remember what? Remember the way that C.S. Lewis put it. They had chosen to worship a vegetable instead of the Creator. They had they had denigrated in that first act to the greatest act of rebellion in giving God's glory to a piece of fruit, and they were stripped bare, and they were. A shame, you know, nakedness, Jonathan Edwards will say, nakedness denotes not just guilt and sin, but insufficiency, helplessness, exposedness, and defenselessness. And you know, this is not meant, this is not meant to be a happy thing. This is not meant to make you feel better about yourself. This is meant to say, this is what we are by nature. This is what has happened. You know, I I said to the boys, trying to teach them about, um, which we'll come to, why God covers Adam and Eve and what that means, but I said to them years ago, um, Eli, why do we wear clothes? And Eli said, because people will make fun of us if we don't. (laughs) Um, I used to witness, when Anna and I did evangelism in New Jersey, I used to actually say to people, do you know why you wear clothes? And they'd be like, "Uh, people would laugh at us if we don't. The reality is, we wear clothes because Genesis 3 is true. I challenge you, I challenge you 
to find a better explanation than that. Because there is something built into this world that says Genesis 3 is absolutely true and that there is a correlation between physical and spiritual nakedness and that God is teaching us that we have been stripped bare of righteousness and that we have no righteousness and that we now have shame and we now have nakedness. We've lost the beauty. We've lost the luster. It's interesting, too, Adam and Eve's response. They've given up the innocence and they've traded it for guilt and shame and immediately they try to cover themselves. Immediately they take action. They know what they've done is wrong. Immediately they decide we will take it into our hands to fix this. And so secondly, Adam and Eve have exchanged fellowship with God for alienation from God. Instead of going to the Lord and saying, we have sinned against you. And I'll tell you why they couldn't have done that, because there was no gospel. There was no hope of pardon. There was only strict justice. They had rebelled against God, and the only thing that was pronounced over them was condemnation. There was no hope of mercy at this point. That will come. And they traded fellowship with God for alienation from God, and they attempted to fix themselves. And let me say this this morning. Every one of us, by nature, tries to sow fig leaves to cover the shame of our sin, and we do it in a hundred thousand ways. We do it through religion. Jonathan Edwards will actually say that the fig leaves, in a sense, represent the worship ordinances and people coming to to. to pay their penance through what they do in worship. Cain will do this, won't he? Cain will bring the fruit. There's the fig leaves. He will bring, he's, worship, he's trying to worship. People say, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter where you worship. Listen to me carefully. Anybody that says that, you need to run a thousand miles from because the God of Scripture says that there is only one way back into reconciled relationship with him through Jesus. And there are millions of people trying to cover themselves with fig leaves of religion. Millions of people thinking, I can cover the shame and the condemnation if I just do this and if I just, I, I, I start going to church. I remember talking to a woman in Greenville, South Carolina and trying to get her to visit the church we were in and she obviously was trying to deflect that's another sowing of fig leaves. Well, what about that person? They really need. And she said, yeah, we really need to get people into church. No, we really need to get people into Jesus. We really need to get people into union with Jesus because there are millions of people living under the fig leaves of religion who are not covered by God. Millions. You know, Jesus tells that story of the wedding feast and, and um, everyone's finally gathered in. Those that made excuses were outside. Everyone else is gathered in and, and Jesus says in that great parable that when everyone's there, there's one man without a wedding garment on. It's the righteousness of Christ. And he doesn't have it on. He's been with the people of God. He's been in the church. He's been religious and he's cast out because he's not clothed by God. Notice Adam and Eve don't even need God to come to them. This is remarkable. Listen carefully. God has not even come to Adam and Eve 
and they already know their alienation. They have already taken an assessment of themselves and tried to fix it. They didn't even hear God's word after the fall. God has not yet come to them, and they're already trying to fix themselves. That's how powerful conscience is. That's how powerful conscience is that men try to fix themselves even before they hear God's word. And then notice the steps of the alienation. No sooner, and I think it's interesting, by the way, and I'm not quite sure what to do with this, but Adam and Eve disobey God and take of the fruit of the tree, and then they sow leaves from a tree together to cover themselves, and now they hide behind a tree when God comes. They hide behind the tree. Notice, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, if you want to understand how fallen we are, you get this. No sooner does Adam and Eve, no sooner do Adam and Eve hear the voice of God, hear the word of God coming to them, and know that God is approaching them, yes, in judgment at this point, no sooner do they hear him coming and they are approached by him that they try to hide behind a tree that he made. Now, before the fall, they would have had perfect knowledge that God sees behind all the trees. He made the trees. God is everywhere. There's nowhere you can hide. The psalmist will say, if I ascend to heaven, he's there. If I make my bed in Sheol, he's there. If I go to the furthest most parts of the sea, he's there. The darkness is like light before him. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He's behind us and before us. His hand is upon us. He fills the heavens and the earth. And yet... The darkness and the ignorance and the alienation of sin leads Adam and Eve to think we can hide behind something God made so that he won't see us. There is a stark picture of alienation. You know, Paul will, the Apostle Paul will pick up on this in Ephesians 4, 17, where as he is explaining what's happened to those who have been redeemed and who have been brought out of darkness and have been redeemed by Christ, he tells them, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must not walk as the other nations do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given them up to sensuality, greed, and practice all kinds of impurity. That's Adam and Eve behind the trees. They have a darkened mind and understanding and a hardened heart, and they think they can hide from God. Now, I want to say this as we consider the alienation of fallen man from God. It's interesting and important for us to understand that Adam and Eve have some sense of their sin, and they have some sense of the wrong of their sin, and they have some, some sense of being burdened because of what they did. There's a sense where they're burdened because of what they did. And there are many people in our world who will tell you if someone feels bad about what they did, and if someone knows what they did was wrong, and if someone's trying to make it better, that that's repentance. And I'm going to tell you this morning, that is not repentance. Adam and Eve are trying to make it better, and that is not repentance. 
That is not gospel-driven repentance. That is not turning back to God. That is not being reconciled to God. That is legal, counterfeit repentance. And every one of us knows it. Every one of us knows what it is when we've messed up to try to make it right without going to the Lord, confessing our sins, casting ourselves on Jesus. So Adam and Eve are now alienated from God. They are turned away from God. They try to hide from God. They try to hide the facts about their apostasy. They resort, and this is very important, they resort to evasion, distortion, and deception all the same tactics that Satan used. Isn't that interesting? They resort to evasion. They hide from God. They resort from, to distortion. Well, well, when God finally comes, where are you? What have you done? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you you shall not eat of? Immediately, they distort. Well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me. It's deception. Well, Lord, it, it really wasn't my fault. It was her fault, and she with the serpent, and it's passing the buck down the line. It really wasn't my problem. It, it, was, it was something outside of me that made me do this. And so you see that all of the distortion and evasion and deception reveal to us the alienation. Well, there is hope, and there is good news. Um. The Lord calls to the man, notice verse 9, and he says, where are you? Now, what's interesting is there is both an element of God coming in judgment and an element of God coming in mercy. And this is beautiful, and this is what we want to get. If we get that first part, here's what we want to get. God comes, and God doesn't wipe man out, and God doesn't say, I'm done with you, and God doesn't say, hell forever, that's it. God comes and he says, where are you? And what God is doing is he, is he is seeking to reconcile Adam to himself. He is seeking to bring man back to himself. He is seeking to draw him back. And notice he says, where are you? And, and Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Notice he doesn't say because I sinned against you. Isn't that interesting? The alienation. He says, I was naked. He doesn't say because I disobeyed you. I was naked and I hid myself. And then the Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, and now that passing of the buck. But notice what the Lord does. The Lord then gives that promise in Genesis 3.15. He gives that gospel promise. He comes, and before he ever pronounces a curse on Adam and Eve, before the Lord ever says what the consequences of their sin are going to be while they're still in the garden and they have not yet been exiled out of paradise, God says, I am going to send a redeemer and I am going to crush the head of the evil one. Um, I've said to this congregation on numerous occasions, Genesis 3.15 is, is the single most important verse in the Bible and understanding the context about it is. Here is the God that should have come with strict justice and wiped out Adam and Eve, but God's plan was for redeeming mercy and grace to redeem a people to himself and to reconcile a people, and that is going to take a redeemer. And notice what God does. This is beautiful. Notice verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins 
and clothe them. Every theologian worth his salt understands that this is pointing to the righteousness of Jesus. Anybody who understands the the story of Scripture knows that the rest of the story is how does man and woman fallen in Adam, dead in sins, how can we be reconciled to God and how can we get the clothing that we need to be clothed with before God? And God takes an animal and probably a lamb and there's a principle of substitution, isn't there? Think carefully. There's a principle of substitution. God takes an animal. He will substitute that animal for his image bearers and he will clothe them with these skins. And then as the storyline unfolds, there will be animal skins again when they are overshadowing the tabernacle where the priest goes in to minister. And that's a picture of the incarnation of the Son of God. And Adam was the priest in the garden, and now he's naked. And when you read in Exodus that the priest is not to go up on the altar and show his nakedness, that's taking you back to the garden. And it's saying that God has to clothe his priest, and that to be in the presence of God, in the temple of God, there has to be a covering. There has to be a covering for God to dwell with his people. And ultimately, the Bible says that Jesus comes and he tabernacles. He takes flesh and blood to himself. And isn't it remarkable that the Apostle John gets all of this? And the Apostle John notes what Jesus is wearing when he goes to the cross. He says that he had a seamless robe from top to bottom. Seamless robe. Why mention that? Why mention a seamless robe, except that Isaiah the prophet had said that God would come and he would, ro- he would cover his people with righteous robes. I will clothe you with robes of righteousness. I will cover you. I will, I will put my righteousness on you. And it's remarkable when Jesus hangs on a tree, naked, shamed, publicly shamed, That robe is removed, but it's not torn. It's gambled over, showing what men think of Jesus and think of his righteousness. And as the Son of God hangs naked in shame, taking your guilt and your shame and your corruption and my corruption on himself, on the cross, taking that on and being a public display, mocked and ridiculed, and the shame that Adam and Eve felt in the garden wanting to cover themselves, God took on himself. That's remarkable. How can our hearts not weep over our sin when we think about that. That God experiences what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden by imputation and substitution so that he can clothe you and cover you with righteous robes so that you can stand before him with festal garments so that like the priest had those glorious robes of beauty in the Old Testament, God has said, I have made you a kingdom of priests. And if you are in Jesus by faith today, every one of you is wearing perfectly righteous robes. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Just like the king, the emperor, couldn't see the clothes because there were none there. When you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, people may not see that when they first look at you, but it is a fact that you have had your sins imputed to Jesus and you have had his righteousness imputed to you. There is a third 
There's a third exchange, and, and briefly, there's the exchange on the, on the horizontal level, person to person. Adam and Eve were living in perfect fellowship and harmony and love and delight, and they, they would have had a marriage like no marriage we could have ever, ever imagined. Perfect, unbroken fellowship, and now hostility and enmity. One theologian actually says this is functionally the first divorce. You see the hostility, Adam blaming his wife, the wife blaming the serpent, God then saying role reversal, that women will want the role over their husband and husbands will want to dominate the wife and all the effects of sin and the alienation. They've exchanged, they've exchanged the sweetness of the fellowship that they had with one another. They've, they've exchanged their intimacy for antagonism. And, and, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that if you don't get everything else I've said this morning because you don't have eyes to see that, you can get this, that the world is not at peace with itself and that men and women are in, in hostile relationships and that marriages are fraught with frustration and antagonism and anger and yelling and bitterness and fighting and infighting on the way to church. I've told you this, my best friend says fighting on the way to church is a Christian tradition. It may be Baptist, it may be Presbyterian, but it is a Christian tradition to, to fight with your spouse on the way to church. It's one of the benefits of, of coming first and not driving together. Um, and you laugh, but it's true. And you know it's true. Because now we've traded intimacy for antagonism and hostility and enmity. And here's the beauty of what God does. When God clothes his people with Christ, he clothes them also with the fruits of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul will often talk about clothing, say, clothe yourself with humility, clothe yourself with meekness. All of you be clothed with love, be clothed with all the beauty of the Lord Jesus, put on the Lord Jesus. And as God enables his people to put on the Lord Jesus, those relationships begin to experience intimacy again. Everything that comes undone is then redone and redeemed and renewed in Jesus. That's where all of this is moving. I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you, first of all, have you come to terms with the fact that we have exchanged, we have exchanged um, the truth, we have exchanged fellowship with God, we have exchanged intimacy with God, we have exchanged innocence we have given up everything that God wanted us to be, and we have become everything that we shouldn't be. And I want to ask you if you understand this morning that that is only remedied in the Lord Jesus. It is only remedied in Jesus. You know, I was thinking about the tree motif that we talked about last week. Adam took and ate and fell. Adam then took leaves from a tree, and sought to cover himself. And then Adam tried to hide behind a tree. Jesus comes, and he takes and eats of the, the tree of judgment, the cross. He gives us his righteousness by hanging on that tree, and he gives us a hiding place. He gives us a hiding place from the wrath of God and from the guilt and the shame of sin. Isn't that amazing? Jesus 
gives us a tree that gives us everything that the trees in the garden could never have given Adam. The cross is all of that. Christ crucified is all of that. The goal for us today is to make sure that we are in him, that we are hiding behind that tree, that we are clothed in his righteousness, that we have had the guilt and the shame of our sin taken away. And you know what? We need to hear this every day of our lives because when you go and you sin again and you realize the broken relationships and the great exchange, you need to remember the other great exchange. Every day, it's the most important thing you can get in this world. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge our need for that great exchange that the Lord Jesus for us, for the guilt of our sin and for the shame of our sin, that you would again, Lord, remind us that you are a God who redeems and who reconciles, who turns our shame into glory, who turns our hostility into friendship, who turns our animosity into intimacy. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be merciful to us. We pray that you would make us to feel our need for you. We pray that you would remind us of these truths and that you would cause them to sink down deep into our minds and our hearts. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, we pray, for we ask these things in your name. Amen.